Morning, church. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord has not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us torn, let us be who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, seem to be particularly appropriate psalms given the circumstances uh, that Elijah and his family faced this morning. Let's pray. O Lord our God, be with us this morning as we open your word. By your spirit, open our hearts, our ears, and our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things of you in your word, and that seeing you in your glory this day, we might learn to put into practice the things that you speak to us, to your glory and to our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two of the most beautiful words in the English language, in my view, are mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. They are beautiful because they speak of the very nature of God's love for us, for you and for me. Mercy and grace, they are gospel words and they are precious words because they are costly words. Mercy and grace are always costly to God and all the more so because what's given is unmerited and undeserved by us. As Christians, we know this is true. We simply don't deserve the good, the good things God gives us. We deserve punishment he gives us forgiveness. We deserve banishment. He gives us citizenship in his kingdom. We deserve death. He gives us life. He not only hears our prayers, but he answers them. That's mercy. That's grace. It's the very nature of God's love. Mercy and grace. 
So today we're going to sing these songs of mercy and grace, Psalm 123 and Psalm 124. But before we do, I want to explain something else that's going on in these two psalms because mercy and grace don't happen in a vacuum. They happen to real people in real places with real needs. There's always a context for mercy and grace. And in this case, in so many cases, the context is suffering and joy. Suffering and joy. Earlier this week, I was reading uh, the books of Jeremiah and First Thessalonians in my quiet times. And as I was reading, I was struck by this connection between suffering and joy. It's a paradoxical connection, isn't it? If you were, had your home invaded, as Elijah and his family did, you would suffer. Uh, would you connect that with joy? How would you connect it with joy? Not that anyone likes to suffer, but as we look at these psalms today, we are talking about a special kind of suffering. It's the suffering by which we enter into the joy of our salvation by receiving God's mercy and grace. God's mercy and grace reconciles these two paradoxical opposites of suffering and joy. Sticking with my quiet time readings for a moment, take, for example, Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet because his message of repentance and faith in the Lord, the good news that he brought, was rejected by the people, by and large. He was hated and despised for telling the truth about God's judgment. In the words of Psalm 123, he endured much contempt. He suffered greatly for his faith in the Lord. But in the end, God vindicated him with the special joy of foreseeing the coming of Christ. For God said through Jeremiah, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. He will be the one who fixes the problems in this broken world. He will be the one who does what is just and right, even if no one else does. Jeremiah suffered for his faith, but he also knew the joy of seeing Christ. And it's the same with the Thessalonians. Paul commends them because they suffered for their faith with a holy joy. He says this, he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And he goes on to say, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In the one sentence, at the same time, suffering and joy. You see, it's the paradox of the Christian life, suffering and joy. Yes, suffering for Christ is part of the Christian life, but so too is the joy of knowing the grace and mercy of God. And this joy far outweighs the sufferings we endure in this life. Later in the same letter, Paul says, you became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You, again, suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Great suffering. Yes, there is suffering, but there is also joy. Paul himself goes on to say, for now we really live 
since you are standing firm in the Lord. Your faith is secure. How can we thank God enough for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Paul sees their suffering, he sees their faith, he sees their endurance, and he is filled with a holy joy. Suffering and joy intersect in Christ. Think of the cross. On the cross, God's mercy and grace are seen supremely in the context of suffering and joy. That's the same in our two psalms today. These songs of mercy and grace need to be sung in the context of suffering and joy. So then, as the writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who, again, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the supreme suffering, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty, where he is to this day. The maker of heaven and earth is seated on the throne, and his people still look to him today, just as they do in these two psalms. His hand is filled with mercy and grace, His favour awaits his faithful servants. His love is deeper than the ocean and stronger than the grave. His name is the only name by which we must be saved. For our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So let's now take a look at Psalm 123, the first of our two psalms. As you can see, it's only four verses long, very short, but it actually packs quite a punch. I called it looking to God's mercy, looking to God for mercy. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. What is God's mercy? This is an important question. What is God's mercy? God's mercy or God's compassion, it's the same word translated in English in a different way, God's mercy is one of the most precious things you can know about God's character. In fact, when God revealed his name to Moses on Mount Sinai, of all the things that he revealed to Moses about himself, it was his mercy or his compassion that came first. Think of it. God's mercy and God's grace divine the very essence of God's love toward us as his own name declares. For God said to Moses, declaring his own name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's where God's name begins, with compassion, with mercy. The first attribute that God describes himself with, the compassionate and gracious God. Our God is a compassionate God, and he loves to show mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the heartfelt response of someone who can help towards someone who needs help. Okay? It's the compassionate response of someone who can help towards someone who needs help. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the ultimate uh, parable on mercy, 
Jesus explains how mercy is at the heart of being a good neighbour. The Jewish man who had been robbed was left lying in the gutter, half dead. But when a priest and then a Levite saw him there, they walked by on the other side, went around him and continued on their way. The point is, no mercy. Bad neighbours. How would you categorise yourself as a neighbour? When you see someone in need and you're able to help, do you help? But the Samaritan, when he saw the man in his suffering, though he did not know him, he had no allegiance or alliance to him, you would think that he was a complete stranger, yet what did the Samaritan do? We call him the Good Samaritan because he stopped, he drew aside, he got out his medicine kit, his olive oil and other things, and he cleaned the man's wound and he dressed the man's wound and he put him on his donkey and he carried him on his donkey and he took him to an inn and when he got there he even paid the price of the accommodation for the injured man. Extraordinary mercy of a kind that we generally do not show today for we have lost the art of being merciful. We are bad neighbours And we should feel the rebuke of that, as Christians especially, since we have received such mercy. And yet how often we walk past those who we can help, but we choose not to help because we don't want to inconvenience ourselves and we lose the opportunity to transform a life. I am rebuked by this, very rebuked. That's mercy, you see, and it's life-changing. God's mercy is God's love in action, and it's what this psalmist in this psalm is banking on. He needs mercy, he needs help. Here is a faithful believer in desperate need of God's mercy. So what does he do in verse 1? First of all, he looks to the king for help the king of mercy and grace. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. No ordinary king. Implicit here is the idea that God is approachable and that God himself is merciful to all who will turn to him in their need in prayer. So like a good servant, he lifts up his eyes to heaven from where his help comes. He is a mere nobody in the scheme of things. He's only a servant. But he has this in his favour. He is a servant of the king. He's a servant of the king of mercy and of grace. And at times like this, it's actually not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And this servant happens to know the king, the king of mercy and of grace. Also notice there's no ego in his attitude. He doesn't come in with a self-promoting, self-important Uh, approach but there is loyalty and there is love there's a respect and and an affirmation of this king's majesty 
As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. This is the attitude to aim for in approaching God. When you come to God, come to him quietly, reverently, expectantly, imploringly, most of all humbly. Wait upon him. Look to him. Trust in him. You know, if you've ever owned a cat or a dog, you'll know how they can melt your heart with their looks when they implore you. It's true. Those of you who own pets, you'll know what I mean. A faithful pet will watch your hand here and there and up and down. (laughs) Because it's waiting, isn't it? Poppy's waiting. Master's got something. I'm not saying that we're pets. Not at all, but seems to me, as you see on the screen, sometimes I think pets do a better job at imploring their master's hearts than we as Christians do at imploring our God. They're more intent, they're more focused, more patient, more, they will outweigh you until, until they receive what they are begging for. We are less attentive to God than our pets are to us. Again, I feel rebuked. I guess it's hard for us today to bring ourselves down to this lowly position because it's humbling. But honestly, it's much better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than to pretend to be great and yet lack bread. We can go around pretending to be great in the world when really we're very, very poor. Better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than pretend to be great and yet lack bread. That would be so foolish. Our passage reminds us that we are kings, servants rather, servants of the king of mercy and of grace, who has invited us to come into his presence directly by faith and to seek his favour for our good. He is the one who can help. We're the ones who need help. This is a great privilege and we ought to avail ourselves of it as often as we can. This is exactly what the psalmist does next in verses 3 and 4. He brings this heartfelt plea of his in a prayer for mercy. Notice, though, that this prayer has now been taken over by the whole church. It sort of begins with the, the leader of the church, and then everybody joins in and says, this guy's onto something, we're joining in this prayer. It's been taken over by the church. It's become the corporate prayer of all the believers. Verse 3, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. This attacking, ridiculing and belittling of the church has been going on for too long. The psalmist is saying here that he's completely fed up with it. His language is actually much more emotive than our psalm's uh, translation suggests. Filled up like a to bursting point, like a wineskin that you couldn't get another drop into, or like a balloon that if you had one more breath, pop, it would blow. He's completely fed up with all this folly around him. There's too little mercy among men these days and too much cruelty. For too long we've let the world speak all kinds of lies against us. So how can we put this prayer into practice today? What kind of things could we pray for as a church that we need God's mercy in? 
Well, I've got a few suggestions. And first of all, I think we need to pray for revival and renewal. And so Ross and Manuk's little group on a Sunday morning tea is a, is a great start. But I really need to pray together more than we are as a church. We can start with our church, no doubt. But then we also need mercy in some of the things that our governments are planning to do, which are going to bring huge changes to our society, even in the year ahead, if all of these things get up. Here are just a few for examples. The New South Wales Equality Amendment LGBTIQA plus bill, which is actually not so much about equality as forcing Christians and others to accept the world's morality. The misinformation and disinformation bill, which will give governments the ultimate authority to decide what's true and what's not. The government will be able to sermon and say, this is the truth, believe it. The Productivity Commission's proposal to remove basic religious exemptions so that governments can actually remove leaders of religious charities and put their own appointed leaders in their place. Think about what that means. It also removes tax credits for SRE donations to discourage people supporting SRE in schools. The Australian Human Rights Commission's Cost Protection Bill, I think I shared with it uh, about that through my emails recently, will treat you as guilty until proven innocent, forcing you to pay the legal costs of your accusers if they uphold even just one charge out of all that they bring against you, you'll have to pay all their legal costs. It's going to be a field day for lawyers and bankruptcies for Christians. The New South Wales Conversion Therapy Bill, which we're still waiting to see how the government defines things like prayer and counselling, because in Victoria, prayer is outlawed. You can't pray for somebody who might want, even if they ask you to pray for them about their same-sex attraction or something like that. Um, You're not allowed to do that. We're waiting to see how the New South Wales government determines these things. Uh, This bill will also remove parental rights to say no to activist doctors. So as parents, uh, the state will have the decision over what happens to your children, not you as a parent. That's a new world we're entering into, isn't it? How aware are you of what's coming down from our governments in the year ahead? I could go on. There's more than this. The point is, the battle is hotting up, and this is not simply a battle for hearts and minds. I don't think this is something that we can duck as Christians, because this is ultimately a battle for souls. You've got to see what's going on, and you've got to engage with it. Why do I say this? Well, because there are people in positions of power at the moment, in government, in business, in law in uh, professional um, bodies throughout our land who want to shut down Christian education, shut down Christian charities, shut down SRE, shut down evangelism, shut down prayer, shut down freedom, shut down speech, and what are we doing about it? Are we being good neighbours by keeping silent? Should we just walk by on the other side of the road and let the body die in the gutter? Poor Australia. Tut, tut. Don't worry, we're Christians. We're above that. Is that what we should do? Is that being merciful? 
We Christians are very, very slow to respond. But the psalmist knows what we need to do. He says we need to pray together for God's mercy to be done in these darkening times. We need to pray together that our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. That's the way forward. Actually, begins with prayer. God's mercy is the only thing that will save us from the flood of contempt that is headed our way. If our government gets what they want in the year ahead, we are going to be in big trouble. They want to impose an anti-Christian morality on our society that will make it much harder for you and me to share our faith. Like I said, it's a battle for the soul. It's a battle for the soul. But I also want to say, don't despair. Don't despair. I've got good news for you if you're willing to trust in the Lord. Basically, these cultured despisers who hate God and despise the church will overreach themselves. We see it happening just a little bit at the moment, that overreach and a little bit of pushback. And that's maybe encouraging, but our eyes, our focus mustn't be on the world so much as on the Lord, right? We can be distracted by these things. But the psalmist reminds us that our help actually is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the joy of the redeemed is that joy which overcomes the pride and folly of the human heart. And so we find ourselves back in this context of suffering and joy. No matter how bad things get, I am joyful in the Lord. In fact, the darker things get, the more joyful I am because there's never been a better time for the gospel. It gives me more and more opportunities to talk to people about the troubles that they're having, the worries that they have, and why I'm not worried. I'm not worried. You know, I've said multiple times, I think I might end up in jail one day. I don't care. Bring it on. Are you ready to go to jail? Are you ready to lose your job? Are you ready to lose your opportunity in university because you believe in Jesus? Or are you going to walk by on the other side of the road and let the body die? Will you fight for Australia? Not because Australia needs saving, but because God's the people in Australia do. If war came to our lands, would you run or would you stay? Would you fight or would you flee? It's quite possible we'll be at war in the next 18 months to two years. Where are you going to go? Have you thought about that? Are you looking at what's happening in the world? Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and the joy of the redeemed will overcome whatever difficulties we face. We must believe that. Or what do we believe at all? So, Psalm 124, the joy of the redeemed. Let's bring it on. This is my second point for today. The joy of knowing God's grace. Psalm 124, a song of a sense of David. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. It's a terrifying thought, but that's not how this story ends. There were many times in King David's life when he had to face all kinds of dangers, from the Philistines who were attacking the land, from King Saul who became insanely jealous of David as his son-in-law, 
from Absalom, his own son, who staged a treasonous uprising against his father. There are always people who are trying to get at David for one reason or another. As he puts these experiences into song, he creates a wonderful resource for worship. And Psalms like Psalm 124 become a part of Israel's songbook for life, a response to the troubles in the world. And at some point, these psalms were added to the collection known as the Songs of Ascent that we've been looking at these past few weeks, these 15 songs that take us from the Valley of Despair up to the Temple of the Lord, there to worship with him in his presence. And this is the stairway. We're halfway up. We're neither up nor down. We're in the midst of suffering and joy, these two songs we're looking at today. And this is a wonderful psalm because even now it speaks with an immediacy that I find captivating. Do you find it captivating? The relief of David at his rescue is palpable and we are able to feed off that for we all have our own trials and troubles in life. But here we have a psalm that is a lesson in thankfulness for God's grace. For our God is a very present help in time of trouble. King David had been through all kinds of trouble in his life, and yet the Lord delivered him from them all. So this case here, whatever it was, we don't know exactly, but it was such an amazing deliverance from what seemed like certain death that he knows that only God could have supplied this grace. It was an act of sheer and unmerited grace. Verse 1, again, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. I should be dead by now, David's saying. I should be dead by now, but here I am, still alive. How can this be? This psalm is so vivid. You can almost see the angel of death striding down toward you with its flaming sword. A tsunami of hatred is poised to sweep us away. And so we cry out to God for mercy. And the Lord hears your prayer and he answers For the Lord is able to change the points on the tracks of history so that the train that was about to come down and obliterate you suddenly click changes and races past you, leaving you completely unharmed, if not a little shaken. That's the power of God's grace. So now the danger is past. Peace is restored. Praise the Lord. Verse 6. Now we say thank you. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. Very graphic, vivid image. I don't know what it's like to be eaten by a lion. I don't ever want to find out what it's like to be eaten by a lion. But if I was ever going to be eaten by a lion and someone rescued me, I know I'd be incredibly grateful. And that's what David is saying here. God's gracious intervention is life-changing. It's like being saved from being eaten by a lion. And again, in verse 7, he says, we have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. And the bird here actually is just a little bird, just a little sparrow. Harmless, weak, inoffensive, but trapped. But now, he says, the snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This psalm captures the relief of a man who knows the joy of being saved by grace and that by God. So he exalts in his saviour to whom he owes absolutely everything. 
Well, that brings me back to Jesus. For really, this psalm is a song of praise to him. A song of praise to our King of mercy and grace. As Christians, we look to Jesus, who laid down his life to save us from certain death and destruction. He withstood the attacks of cruel and sinful men who were driven by a hatred of God. His flesh was torn as Satan sank his teeth into him. But then he rose again victorious from the grave. And today we live because of him. We've been set free from the fowler's snare. We've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. We owe our very lives to his gracious intervention. So as David once sang, let us also sing today, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, today we've seen that mercy and grace don't happen in a vacuum. They happen to real people in real places with real needs. We've also seen that although there is suffering, there is also joy. And for Christians, that joy far outweighs the sufferings we endure. And now to finish, I've got six points for you, things you might want to take home from today's word. Six points. Be realistic, be optimistic, be evangelistic, be patient, be neighbourly, and be well-informed. Okay, six points. Be realistic. If you're a Christian, you will suffer for your faith, like like it or not, okay? That's just how it is. If Christ suffered, then we will too. Be realistic. As we've seen today, God's people in ancient times were confronted by trials and tribulations of a kind not so very different, the kinds of troubles that we have to face today as Christians. So get used to it. Toughen up. There's worse to come. There's worse to come, okay? Get used to that reality. There's worse to come. This is a spiritual battle we're in and we must be prepared for the fight. Be realistic. But then also be optimistic. Do you see? Suffering and joy. Be optimistic. Remember the joy of the redeemed, that Christ has won the victory for us. And all he asks of us now is that we stand firm in our faith, not move from the hope set before us in the gospel. Stand firm. It's very important that you resist the temptation of being negative or defeatist about the state of the church today. It's easy to be discouraged, but it only helps the enemy. Where is your faith? Lift up your eyes to the Lord and look to Christ. The reason we have to be optimistic today is not found in us or in the church or in the leaders of the church. No, that's not where our help is found. The reason we have to be optimistic today is that when we lift our eyes and look to Jesus, we find that Jesus is the king of mercy and of grace. If you look to him, you'll find that the joy he gives you is one of the most powerful weapons you can have against the joy-robbing culture of our world. Our culture is a joy-robbing culture. Christ is a joy-giving king. Be optimistic. Thirdly, be evangelistic. And honestly, if, uh, if you're honest about the suffering, then you can be genuine about the joy, then evangelism is easy. If you're honest about the suffering and genuine about the joy, evangelism is easy. 
The gospel then has a powerful impact on the people you speak to because they're traumatised, they're worried, they're questioning what's happening in the world. And they may think you're crazy for putting your trust in Jesus, but I promise you many of them will still be curious about the reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Optimism and joy make evangelism easy. Be patient. Learn to wait upon the Lord in prayer. As the psalmist says, our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us mercy. Whether long or short, wait upon him. God may not answer straight away, but he will answer. So be patient and look to the Lord until he supplies what we need. And be neighbourly. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the challenge that it presents to us to reflect the mercy that Christ has shown to us. Be the Good Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Show to others the mercy you yourself have received from Christ and you will be doing well. Be realistic. Be optimistic. Be evangelistic. Be patient. Be neighbourly. And finally, be well-informed. This is something that Christians need to do better at. Need to do better at. There are many advantages to being better informed about what's happening in our world. Many advantages. First, it will help you to know how to pray. If you're not well informed, you won't even know what to pray for. At least if you're well informed, you'll know what to pray for. Second, it'll give you a chance to talk to others about the issues you see in society. You can express concern. And third, it then gives you opportunity to share your faith with others. Because as you share your optimism conversation will turn to Christ. To me, that's the best reason of all to be better informed, so that you can have conversations that lead to Christ. As you know and learn about the issues that everyone is concerned about, you can bring Christ into the answer. So then, coming back to those words written by the author of Hebrews... Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty, where he is today and from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world of turmoil we have a king of mercy and grace that gives us reason to rejoice. Help us to trust in you and not be overwhelmed by despair. Help us to rejoice in you so that we can be useful to you in your kingdom as we share the hope that we have with others around us. We pray, Lord, for the turning of hearts back to Christ. We turn for the awakening of hearts in the church that we might be a people of mercy and of grace, willing to suffer whilst rejoicing in all that we have, the riches and the benefits of being servants of the King of mercy and of grace. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. We pray that you would help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.